Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Many people have arrived in this country with little more than the clothes on their back, fleeing oppression and poverty. Some wind up rich. Some achieve greatness in one field or another. Some lead us into the future, and others help us approach our noblest ideals. Citizenship makes these immigrants legal. But it is their big dreams, their hard work, their perseverance in the face of adversity, their belief in the transcendent power of freedom that makes them Americans. California banker Jamil Dada is part of this centuries-old story, and yet he also represents something a bit different. He didn't immigrate to the U.S. because he was hungry, fearful, or desperate. The scion of a prominent, wealthy Pakistani family, Donna had a very comfortable life waiting for him back home. But he felt smothered by his family's traditional expectations, that he would take his place in their rigid caste system, that he would become one of the bosses in the family business, that he would submit to an arranged marriage. Jamil wanted to live his life on his terms. And by staying in America after college, he started chasing something that his parents struggled to understand. What was your first concept of America? What did it mean to you? I I do have a unique story because in Pakistan, I went to American Embassy School, grade 1 through 12. And, you know, Americans, God bless them, build little America wherever they are. So it's an embassy school. I went to the Karachi American School. Karachi is the largest city in Pakistan. And 75% of the students in these embassy schools are Americans. 
State Department people, military people, business, American businesses that are doing business there. And 20% are third nationals, children of other countries and ambassadors. And only 5% are allowed to be natives. So you have to be somebody to have a connection to get in there. And I was fortunate enough of all my five siblings, I was the only one that went to that school, grade one through 12. And how did that happen? I think my father had the foresight even back then, that someday the Russians may invade Afghanistan and Pakistan and we may have to all leave and America is the land of opportunity. So we need to have one string, one connection to America. And that's what he always told me. And he did have the foresight for that. So I wanna, um, I'm very grateful to him for that. So that's why I was in that school. And then, um, what was interesting about that school, obviously, like foreign service and even businesses, is that Americans rotate every two or three years. So every two or three years, we would come back after the summer and it would be all new people, new teachers, new principal, new superintendent of the school, a lot of new kids making new friends every two or three years. So over those 12 years, um, I got to meet lots of Americans, lots of teachers, lots of friends. And then when school ended, because my grandparents had a home in London, and every summer we used to go to London for the summer. And then when high school ended, I told my dad I wanted to go to American University. There was no American college or university in Pakistan. And so I said I'd like to go to America. And they said, no, America's too far right now you can go to school in London. So uh, I went to school in London. I went to college in London. And I would talk to my parents every week. And I came home for the summer. Then the second year, same thing. I would talk to them every week and I came home for the summer or they would come uh, and I'd go home for part of the summer. So then after two years, I said, you know, mom and dad, what difference does it make if I'm in LA or if I'm in Los Angeles? You know, we talk every week and we see each other every summer. So they said, fine, you can go to LA. So in 1976, I came to Los Angeles. I went to the University of Southern California. The plan was just to go to school. And I had to go to university for three years because all my credits didn't transfer from the Hammersmith College, which is in the West End of London. So after three years, when I finished school, and I was actually ready to go back home because the plan was to go back home. Now my grandfather, my father's father, was a big entrepreneur. He had offices in eight countries, starting in Pakistan and then going east. He had offices in, well, what is now Bangladesh used to be East Pakistan. So there were offices there and what is now Myanmar used to be Burma. There were offices there, there were offices in all those countries, the Philippines and um, Indonesia and Malaysia. Anyway, so a lot of business. So uh, the plan was to come back, either stay in London because there was business in London or go back and work in the family business. And I was planning to do that. Which was what? What family business? Lots of stuff. Industry, factories, um, trading. And my grandfather was the distributor the exclusive distributor in Pakistan for Lever Brothers. And Lever Brothers is a Fortune 100 company out of Great Britain. 
So a uh, big business. So anyway, so now I'm finished with school. I'm ready to leave in two weeks and go back home or London to meet my parents. And my parents said to me on the phone, they said, son, congratulations on your you know, school stuff. We're happy that you're coming back. And we know you're different than your siblings. And we know you're different than your, most of the family because you went to different school and blah, blah, blah. So as you know, in our culture, we have arranged marriages but we know you're different. So unlike your two older brothers, whose marriages mom and I arranged, we're going to let you pick your own bride. So I got very excited. I'm like, thank you. That's what I wanted to hear. And then as soon as I said that, my mom said, so we've picked three for you to choose from. So, so you had I, like a menu, right? So I said, wait a minute, time out, mom. What do you mean? <laughs> so I thought you said I could choose. And my dad said, yeah, we're going to let you choose one of three. And I said, so I'm not really choosing. You've already chosen three. And he said, look, your mom and I didn't have a choice. Your brothers didn't have a choice. Your older sister didn't have a choice. You're getting a choice. This is how it is. So I said, okay. So I hung up. And then I remembered all the stuff that my grandfather used to tell me when I was little. So whenever we went to my grandparents' house, my grandfather, my father's father, used to gather all the grandchildren and he would give us money, he would shake hands and hug us and then the servants would have us sit in the lawn and he would sit in this big chair like a throne and then he would tell us stories. And there were two or three things that he said all the time that have, have always resonated in my head from that time and they've become my philosophy in life. The first one was this world, this was more than 50 years ago, he was saying this, that this world would be a much better place if we measured success by how much one gives rather than how much one makes. And if you think about it today, people idolize who's making the most money, which athlete is making the most money, which celebrity is making the most money. And it should really, who cares? It really shouldn't be about money. So for me, that's what I do in my community work and giving. So that's one thing that's become my pillar the other thing he used to say is, whatever you do, if it doesn't make you happy, don't do it because you're going to be miserable. Right? Now, that was in your world in, in, in Pakistan. That's right. kind of counterintuitive. Yes, totally counterintuitive. It was like mind-boggling. And the third thing he used to say was, your parents will tell you you need to work in the family my family business, my business, our family business. But I'm letting you know right now, you all need to finish your education. And then when you finish your education, and if mom and dad tell you, you need to work in the family business, but you wanna do something else, even if it means less money, do something else. Because if you get into something that you don't like, you'll be miserable for the rest of your life. So pick something you like. And what you're really talking about is an American mindset even when growing up in Pakistan. Yes, and this was in the 60s. So in my head, and so then in school, I used to get teased because I think I must have been seven, eight, nine years old when he was telling us this stuff. And then in school, you know, there comes a time when the teachers get everybody together. I can't remember what grade or what age, but they would talk about careers and things. And so I remember in class in the American school, the teachers would say, okay, let's go around this class and find out what everybody wants to do 
as when they grow up. Okay, let's go down. Okay, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? And tell us why. And so everybody would say, you know, whatever. I want to be a judge or I want to be a doctor. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a pilot. And they would come to me and the teacher would go, what do you want to be, Jamil? And I would say, I want to be happy. And she giggles and says, okay, we know you want to be happy, but what do you want to be? And I said, I want to be happy. She goes, but there must be something that makes you happy. And I said, I don't care. I don't know. I don't really care what I want to be as long as I'm happy. Because I was just thinking what my grandfather was telling me. So there was a time when some of the other kids were bullying me because they would go around and tease me, you know, and go, there's the happy kid. There's the happy kid. But anyway, so that's something for me that's always been a part of my life. If If I don't like it, I'm not doing it. And that's our, so we have two girls, 34 and 35, and I've always told them from the beginning, you got to give unselfishly and you got to be happy. And one of my kids already did that. She went to four-year university, got a degree in uh, broadcasting journalism. Then she turns around and says, I don't like this. I want to do something else. So I got a little bit irritated and I'm like we spent all this money mom and I to put you through university and then my wife pulled me aside and said you've been telling you've been telling them their whole life that they should do something that makes them happy so now you can't tell her no I mean so yeah it's like yes honey whatever you want to do so I feel blessed both the girls are successful they're both doing well the two son-in-laws are both professionals so Life is good that way, but um, that's kind of what I do. So I came here at age 21, ended up staying here, going back to when my parents had called me about the three wives or the three girls, I, uh, ladies or girls I was going to be able to choose from. And I started thinking when I hung up, you know, grandpa taught me to be happy. He said, do what makes you happy or you'll be miserable. And I don't want to go back and marry these any one of these girls But I know that if I go back, my father will take my passport and I won't be able to come back. I knew that because I had seen that happen before in the family with a couple of cousins. So after three or four days, I called them and said, I'm not coming back. Did you realize that this was really an existential type choice? You were choosing not just based on this particular situation, you were choosing freedom, freedom of thought. Absolutely, I was choosing freedom. And it was a huge decision for me, growing up in a family where everybody was bred and trained to work as one big unit, family unit. In fact, in the wealthy families, the marriages are arranged because they try to keep the money in the families. That's It's a barter system, kind of. You know, you marry each other's um, children, and it keeps the business connections. So I knew I was making a big choice, but I had been growing up with Americans. I had heard all the stories, even though I had never come to America when I was growing up. When I first landed and arrived in the U.S., I felt like I was a deja vu, like I was coming home. But now after three years here, I did feel like home. In fact, the kids in school used to tease me at USC when I would tell them I just came from Pakistan last year. And they would go, really? My grandparents have been here 40 years or 30 years and they don't speak like you. So what did it mean to you at that point? What did America mean to you? Hope and freedom. Absolutely, 100%. And I can tell you now, 40 years later, 
43 years later that, and I speak all over the country, and I think, and I don't know if you know, but you know, I, I chair the Riverside County Workforce Development Board. I sit on our governor's workforce development board in Sacramento. This is my fourth governor. I've been on that board for 17 years, and I was the chair of that board under Governor Schwarzenegger. And I sit on the National Workforce Board in Washington, D.C., and I've been on that board for 15 years, and I'm a past chair on that board, where we help to dislocated workers that are out of jobs and then also help train them. So in that role, I get asked to speak around the country. At least five or six times a year, I travel to other states and I speak at conferences about job training and workforce. To me, that's an extension also of what I learned from my grandfather, you know, helping people get back to work. It's sort of part of giving back in the community and working. So all this stuff is just part of America. And so when I'm speaking, I always start by telling everybody what a great nation this is. And why banking? What, what lit you up about banking? The family, business. So I still have some blood, uh, business in my blood. That's why I believe in the free enterprise system. And uh, my degree was finance. And then I decided, you know what, I'm going to do banking. So I've been doing this for, since I've been here. Let's talk about the building blocks of your success Mm -hmm. in that business. Starting out at the bottom, how did you work your way to the top? Well, knowing that America is the land of freedom and everybody is equal, that's my belief, even today, that given the opportunity, everybody can be successful, that there's no need to just give people handouts because then they have no motivation to do anything. And I talk about that too. And nowadays, some people don't like when I say that because the world has changed. But to me watching how my grandfather had made his business into eight different countries and how my his his sons my father and his brothers continued the business that was always something for me though i didn't have capital i was starting all over in a job but a profession and when i got involved um at first i've been at the bank for 25 years provident bank Uh, is where I'm an officer of. But before that, I worked at American Express Financial Advisors. And I actually really used my community. I was already doing community work and community service because that came natural to me because my family was always very charitable and philanthropic. And I was always taught that the more you give, the more you get. Some people call it karma. I believe it. If you give unselfishly, it comes back, makes you feel good, and it comes back and people come back to you. So that's the philosophy that I used, and it's so easy to do that in America. So the other thing that worked for me was, as I got into this career and stuff, and I realized, what a great country this is. Nobody questions your culture, your loyalty, your traditions, your religion, everybody treats you equally. And that really impressed me, because living in third world countries and having traveled in many countries, while I was young. Nobody, I don't know of any other country, even England and European countries, where everybody is as free as they are here and that everybody's the same. Because where I come from, there's a caste system. 
You know, you don't talk to the poor people. You don't talk to the workers. They're a whole nother class. That disgusts me now, you know, having lived here for 43 years. So the other thing is that I, I have been a U.S. citizen for more than 40 years. And a lot of times when I'm speaking, people ask me, well, what is your biggest accomplishment? And I tell them becoming a U.S. citizen is my biggest accomplishment. Tell, me, tell me about that day. I was in just flying. I was soaring that day because when I became, when I took my oath of office in front of the judge, I, I knew I had arrived and I was like, God, this is amazing. Thank you so much. And then I thanked my dad. By the way, I want to go back to that for a second. So my parents were really upset with me because I didn't go back. And they didn't talk to me for three or four years. Three or four years? Mm -hmm. How do but, you deal with that? It was tough, but everybody visits America. So his brothers were coming to America. A lot of my cousins were coming to America, and I was in touch with everybody else because I was always popular with the family. So I kind of knew that my parents were staying involved and finding out what was going on, and I would communicate via other people. Though directly, we didn't talk. But then when the kids were born... They were coming every year they came after that. Everything was fine. No, no mention was made. Um, you think they felt betrayed by you? I think initially my dad did. But he came to me another day later on and said, you made the right choice. Because the future is there for the next generations. And now I have other relatives that are in the years after have been coming and moving to America. So, and he realized too that, you know, my, my dad told me this, that my father would have been proud of you because he used to talk about broadening and going to other countries in America. So he didn't. I think that initially, I don't think he felt betrayed. I think he was just insulted that you can't question us. We're your parents. That's how it works in the family business. And that was the other thing I didn't want because I saw that. And in that culture, in my old culture, you're always beholden to your parents. You know, I'm 64 now and I had been there and my parents are, unfortunately my parents are both gone, but they had been still been here 87 and 89 years old. They would still be teaching, treating me like I was a kid and I'd have to listen to them. So there's no independent thinking there. It's just all hierarchy. And, and I just, I would not have been able to handle that. Was there a moment that you can identify in which you became a different person? I think when I landed here for the first time, I realized, wow, this is what I was bred for. This is what I went to school for. I have so much opportunity here. I, I got to do something here, something different. And I kept thinking what my grandfather used to say, do something that makes you happy. You don't have to work in the family business. And I just, I took the freedom to expand that a little bit more. Maybe my grandfather didn't verbally convey that, that but he used to say, don't, you don't have to work in the family business, do something else. But he didn't say do something else somewhere halfway around the world. But I took the liberty to expand that. And I kept thinking, 
You know, he said do something else. He was probably meaning somewhere else. Go somewhere and explore. My grandfather hopefully would be proud. And my dad finally told me that he thought, you know, my dad would be proud of what you did. And he was fine because he knew I was doing well. But initially, I know they were, they would always ask the cousins and his brothers when they came and met with me, how is he doing? Does he like it? He has to pay rent and he has to be beholden to people that he's working for. And here he would have been a boss. Well, even though you're the boss, you're not really the boss because your parents are the boss. And everybody lives in like a big compound and there's homes, but everybody eats together, the brothers and the wives and the children, everybody's together. Was there ever a moment in which you said, this is just too tough, this is too foreign to me, I gotta, I gotta go back? No, because to me, every time it was tough, I worked harder. That for me, the ch I love challenge. Now, where does that come from? I think I saw it in my family. You know, businesses, different industries, working with legislators, you know, being successful through rough times. Um, perseverance, the tougher it gets, the harder you have to work. Tell me about a moment that scared you. <laughs> this is going to sound weird because it's another one of my, it's my second biggest accomplishment. I was scared to get married, but I had met somebody amazing, but yet I kept thinking. She wasn't on the list though, right? No. <laughs> she was on God's list that was given to me, that this is the right person for you. And you know, it was an amazing choice because I've had big cancer twice. And she's been there for me, and I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for her. She's my lifeline, and I'm nobody without her. But for some reason, I was afraid to get married, and here's why. Hopefully, she doesn't hear this podcast, but she knows. She'll hear it. That um, American women are free. You know, back home, divorce is not an option. You marry somebody, and you live forever, you know, whether you're happy or not. And because marriage is not really very romantic, it's a business thing. And everybody's together, the whole family's together. So if there's a strain in your spouse, it doesn't matter. There's all this other support system. So as American as I was, or I thought I was, when it was time to get married, I kept thinking, you know, these American women, you know, they, if they don't, if you do something strange or they don't like you three, five years from now, they can say it. I want a divorce, I'm gone. So I had that little chip in my head, but it's it, nothing. I mean, so again, people ask me, what's your biggest accomplishment? And I tell them becoming a US citizen. And then they ask me, what's your next biggest accomplishment? And I tell them marrying my wife, who's been my lifeline. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. What do you say to young people today, particularly immigrants, who don't see opportunity in this country? So, I think there is opportunity in this country. And I know that because I work in the workforce system. 
So when people say, you know, there's so many people that are unemployed, there's no jobs. I work in the workforce system. I'm the chair of the board that does all the job training and connecting dislocated workers to employers. I tell them that there's many jobs looking for people. But the issue with the young people is, and I tell them, and sometimes they get irritated, I tell them employment is by invitation only. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, just because you got a degree doesn't mean the job, you can just step in and get a job. You still have to interview and you still have to prove to the employer that you have enough talent. So in some ways I use these old fashioned comparisons. Like I tell them in the Renaissance period, you know, people used to barter in the markets. It's like a barter system. You go to the market, you bring your food, your products, and somebody brings their products and you exchange. So you're coming to market with your talent, the employer's coming to market with their needs, and if there's a match, you got it. So um, 13 years ago, the National Workforce Board did a survey of 1,000 businesses around the country in like 30 different states. And we interviewed employers 13 years ago, and we asked, if you had a job opening and a 60-year-old person applied and a 25-year-old college graduate applied, who would you hire? 80% of them said we would hire the college graduate. Why? Because they're smarter. Three years ago, 10 years after the first interview um, survey, we did the same survey again and went to 1,000 businesses in multiple states. And we said, if you had a job opening and a 60-year-old applied and a 25-year-old college graduate applied, who would you hire? And 80% of them said we would hire the older worker. I mean, what a switch, right, in 10 years? And then we said, why? And, and rather ominous. Ah, it's scary. So we would say, why? And they would say, when these young people come in for interviews, they don't look at us. When they're doing an interview, this is how they interview. They're talking to the human resource person and a lot of them hold their phone in their hand. And frequently, many of them, in the middle of the job interview, they will pick up their phone and look at the text they got. The problem I see is that over the last 30 years, we've made four-year universities the pedestal. We've been telling all our children, you have to go to four-year university. If you don't get a bachelor's degree, you're a failure. When in reality, two-thirds of our youth, they don't even need to go to four-year university. They can go to a, a community college for 20% of the cost of a four-year university. They can get an associate's degree, get into an apprenticeship program, and they can start a job at $60,000 with no debt. Or you can go to a four-year university and then what? A lot of them get degrees in arts. People aren't hiring in that field. And then you have a $100,000 debt. So 
to me, when young people ask me if I should go to four-year university, I tell them, if you're going to be an attorney or a doctor or something like that, yes. But if you want to get into the trades, if you're going to be a business person, if you're going to be a plumber or an electrician or auto mechanic, no. Go to college. Some of them don't even have to go to college. After high school, they can get into apprenticeship programs with the trade unions. And we work with the trade unions. So that there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of jobs still looking for people. So even though it's been tough, I think a lot of it is that these kids have been taught and trained and their mindset is different because they weren't told this as they were going to school. And so they're a little lost. How important was it for you, the intangible of being hungry for success? Um, to me, it's primal. Number one, had to have success. Because if you're not successful, you're a failure. There's no middle ground. It's either success or failure. I mean, there were years and years and years where even when I was young, I was only sleeping for four or five hours because I was working and working and working because to me, sleep is overrated. You know, I gotta, gotta make sure we get things done, gotta be successful, and then I can rest. So I was in the LA's West Side, and then 33 years ago, I moved out here to the Inland Empire, and that was a big choice also. You know, it was like moving halfway around the world with didn't know a soul. I mean, family-wise, when I came here. Started from scratch. But then I got established in L.A. and I was involved in the L.A. community. But my wife wanted to move. The hustle and bustle was crazy. She wanted to move here. So we moved here. Started again from scratch. And all my friends... Was that scary? It was very scary for me. That was not my choice. Now I'm glad I did that. Oh, so Okay, so a lot of people recoil in the face of fear. You don't. Why is that? Because there's opportunity everywhere. It, you create it. It's just all in here. Um, and I had the confidence that I can do what I do anywhere. So even though I didn't want to move here, and my friends, some of my friends that I'm still very close to in LA, that fraternity friends and friends that I went to school with, we stay socially active, were like, you're out of your mind. Where are you going? Riverside? We only stopped there to get gas or go to the bathroom on our way to Palm Springs from the west side. And I was like, you know, happy wife makes happy life and I'm going. And then I would say in my head, I had convinced myself that even though I'm happy in LA, the wife wants to move, that's fine. Because in LA, I was a small fish in a big pond. And then I convinced myself when I came here that someday I want to become a big fish in a little pond. And now I feel like I've, I mean, over the years I've achieved that. Well, among your community involvement, you've uh, gotten very uh, involved with the military. How did that happen? And what does it mean to you as an immigrant? So I had no connection to military back at home. Had no connection to military when I lived in LA. 33 years ago when I came here, again, it's that merchant business mentality in my head or in my psyche. 
So the first week that we moved here, I went to the Chamber of Commerce and joined the Chamber. And my wife was like, why are you joining the Chamber? And I'm like, I'm going to get involved with business people. That's what it's about. So when I joined the Chamber, they said, here's seven committees the Chamber has. We would like you to get involved in one of these committees so you can get to know people. So I'm like, okay, show me the committees. And one said military affairs. And I'm like, what is this? And they said, there's a big military base here. And I said, what does this committee do? And they said, well, it supports the morale, welfare, and recreation of the troops. So I said, are there airplanes? And they said, yeah. So I'm like, sign me up. And that's how it started. So as I started getting involved, but back then it was an active duty base. And that was in 1997. And then four years later, three years later, we went to war with Kuwait with, you know, um, the first desert storm with Dad Bush. And, um, and then when it came to me, when I started working with the military and I realized and reading about and the National Cemetery and reading about the military and the background. And then I got turned on to the museum and I started realizing that the great generation, the sacrifices they made. So I started paying attention and then I realized that this country fought two world wars just to help other countries. That the U.S. funds and gives money to over 100 different nations. That we are the the wealthiest, the strongest, the most generation nation, I think, ever in history. And people are always lining to come up here. So for my business and my investment business, banking business, I go to New York a couple of times a year also. And I was always fascinated by the United Nations, having lived in other countries. So I would go to the UN and sometimes I would get documents or read about the UN and I was starting to see that the US was one of, out of the 216 nations in the world, there were only a handful where more people were coming in than leaving and the US was one of those. And then I started to realize, why do people come here? Why do, in the last five years, hundreds of thousands of people line up at our borders to come here, why? because we remain a beacon of hope, freedom, and democracy for the rest of the world. And uh, my brothers, my cousins, even still to this day, they tell me you're the luckiest person in our whole family because you left when you did and you became an American citizen. We are terrified every day because we don't know if we're gonna get shot or kidnapped or killed. And in these third world countries, there's no freedom. And we would give up all the wealth we have if we had to, um, if we could live in the U.S. Because when they come to visit, they're like, we would love to live here. But immigration is tough now for a lot of those people. So that's worked for me. What's the most important lesson that you have learned that has been central to your success? For me, because I, how I was raised and because my grandfather had such a big impact on me, I think for me it is giving back unselfishly. I mean, 
I, because I, because of my involvement with March, and also in the workforce um, area as chair of the county's workforce board, even though my only paying job is my profession at the bank, but all my other community work, you know, I do 30 hours of community work every week, all year long. But that's what makes me happy. People ask me, well, you just had stage four high grade cancer last year. I had dropped to 120 pounds last year. I had no eyebrows, I had no hair. And City of Hope had given me a 70% chance of survival. And 70 is pretty good, but what the other 30 is like death, you know, it's a little scary. But I had work to do. I love what I do. I wanna make a difference in people's lives. But I appreciate the opportunities I'm given by people. If I was not given opportunities to serve the military and work in the workforce business and help people get back to work, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. So I'm grateful for that. But because I'm a county official, I get awards in a lot of cities. I've gotten awards, Citizen of the Year awards in other cities. I've got awards from the Cancer Society, from the police departments, from the county sheriff, from legislators. Um, people ask me all the time, how many awards have you gotten? But it's just another pat on the back and, 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 uh, but the city of Riverside is a big city and that's the highest honor. So citizen I, of the year. Yeah. Citizen of the year. That's an incredible that's honor. That's a big honor. What did that mean to you from your background? How did that affect the way you saw yourself? It's a huge honor, and I cried when they told me. I had tears in my eyes, and I said, I don't think I deserve this. I, and they, the committee and the committee was seven past citizens of the year, and they said, we think you deserve this more than half the people that have been given Citizen of the Year awards for the past couple of decades, and that brought tears to my eyes. What that means to me is, again, that this is such an amazing nation. What a great nation. Because for the last 19 years, since 9-11, we've been fighting with Pakistan. Terrorism over there, you know, they were sheltering Saddam, I mean, uh, Osama bin Laden. But that's where I'm from. I have met five presidents. I have White House clearance. I fly in F-16 fighter jets. And I fly the military airplanes five times a year. I mean, talking about that here's the sound of freedom an airplane is going overhead a military airplane but what other country would do that i don't know of any other country that would allow somebody like me to do all this stuff i get asked i have cell phone numbers for our federal senators and mem 20 members of congress um the most powerful nation in the world i mean in any other country they would say well this guy comes from a country where we're fighting lock him up or you can't you're not allowed to come to congress or the White House, or a military base. But nobody questions anything here. You're, it's, everybody's equal. That's another reason why I give back. Sometimes my girls ask me, don't you ever get tired of giving back? And I'm like, no, because this, is, this country has accepted me as one of their own. I can never stop giving back. I mean, I think that... Um, that's what life is all about. I remember that uh, December 
14 months ago when I got diagnosed this time. And I had big cancer 12 years ago, and Cedar sinai was my cancer clinic. And I have a cancer of the central nervous system. But it wasn't stage 4 last time. They had caught it early. And they told me then that the cancer you have, you're never going to be in remission. Your cancer just goes dormant, and it can come back. So the doctor, my oncologist at Cedar sinai his name is Dr. Michael Lill. He's an Australian doctor. He's a fellow at the UCLA School of Medicine, very talented guy. And he told my wife and I, what you have is going to come back, but let's hope that it doesn't come back for 10 years and maybe by then there'll be a cure. How do you deal with that mentally? In other words, it's not just that you're in a fight for your life, but the fact that you can't see an end point It's a little bit scary, but it's not scary for me because I have had such a wonderful life that if my life ends today, I think I've done the best that I can. I always try to do the best that I can. And if I have to go, I have to go. Everybody has to go someday. And honestly, um, I'm 64 and in the last 10 years, I can name 20 people that I know really well that are gone, that were younger than me. So life is, I look at it like every day is a gift, every birthday is a gift. But what I worry about is my kids, my wife and my two daughters and now the grandkids. So, um, so that doesn't really bother me because once again, I think that you can, first of all, when you get diagnosed, when your doctors tell you you have cancer, it really rocks your, your life because it's scary as hell. And of course you sit there and think, why me? But then I remember too that from the first time when I had cancer, a lot of the people that I was taking chemo with, because people are on chemo schedules, like you come back every two weeks or every three weeks and in that schedule, you see the same people when you go to the lab, radiology lab to get your cancer, uh, chemo. So 12 years ago, my schedule was every two weeks. So when I went every two weeks, it was the same six or seven people that were there. And sometimes if I was a little late, the radiology nurses would say, all these people have been anxiously waiting here for you, Mr. Dada, because they all, they all come in and go, is Mr. Dada coming today? Because we love his stories. And you brighten everybody up. And then a year or two later, then I found out from my oncologist, you know, that person passed away and that lady passed away. And then I would ask the doctor, and he would tell me, the ones that give up are the ones that pass away. They don't have the will to fight. They don't like life as much as you do. So 12 years go by and I'm thinking, okay, 10 years are gone. I, it didn't come back. Maybe it's not coming back. Well, December of 2018, I get diagnosed again. And then they tell me now you have stage four high grade cancer of the central nervous system. So this time they tell me, it's going to be rough. Your body is 12 years older. The chemo is going to be more aggressive. It's going to have more side effects. And there were two oncologists at City of Hope, and they told my wife and I when we were sitting there, they said the chemo is going to be aggressive. It's not going to be easy. But don't worry, we'll get you a six-week leave of absence, so you, can, you should not have any stress. We don't want you to handle any stress. So we'll get you a six-month leave of absence. And my wife started giggling, and the one oncologist said, I'm sorry, Mrs. Dada, did I say something weird? Something upset you? And she said, you're stressing, you're stressing my husband now. And he goes, oh. And she said, you're telling him 
he can't go to work and he can't do his thing and you're giving him leave of absence? No, he, you can't keep him home. If he sits at home, he'll worry about his health and die. So no leave of absence. He, he needs to do what he needs to do. That's how he operates. And then I told the doctor that what I do, my community service is like a dose of chemo for me. You got to let me do what I got to do. So I don't need a leave of absence. So my schedule was every three weeks. But my cancer, because it's a cancer of the central nervous system, my chemo treatments were every three weeks and I had to do seven of them. But it was a series of two days. So the first day I took intravenous chemo in my arm for six hours. And then the second day, because it's a cancer of the central nervous system, the second day they would do a lumbar puncture and it's called intrathecal lumbar chemo. So they would stick a big fat needle in my spinal column and deliver chemo and right directly into my spinal fluid. And that was painful. So then that was a Monday and Tuesday. And then I would be sick Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, stayed home, feeling much better Saturday and Sunday, go out to a restaurant or go to a movie. And then I went to back, I was at 50% the following Monday and I'd go to work. I'd do my community work. And I knew that if I didn't, I'd start reverting negatively. But once I'm at work or I'm involved in my day-to-day -day stuff, the pain went away. I wouldn't even, couldn't even think about it. My wife would call me every two hours. She'd call my assistant or call me and go, how are you feeling? And I would tell her, I feel great. The only way, the only reason I know I'm sick is because you keep asking me and you keep calling me to check out on me. But she would do it a couple of times a day anyway. But so I forget about this stuff when I'm doing what I love. So it worked for me. What did you learn about yourself through that experience? That if your mind can control a lot of this stuff, that if you believe in this stuff, you can convince yourself and you can actually will away a lot of negative stuff. I mean, ultimately, uh, I'm sure there are cases where it's really bad and it, it takes hold, but a lot of times it's the positive thinking and the will to live and that I think you can make a difference. So I learned that and it made me stronger. It made me much stronger. Um, and I learned that you can actually not give up. It doesn't matter what it is, even though in my head, I kept thinking, eh, if it doesn't work, it's fine. I'm gone, I'm gone. But I don't want to be gone because I have a lot more work to do. And I got kids to raise, grandkids to raise. I want to see them grow up. So that became a mission. And what advice would you offer to someone who is going through something, that they, a mountain that they think that they cannot climb? Do it and don't look at the mountain. You can get there, but don't look at the top of the mountain. Just look at it in steps. And do this one little portion. And when you get there and you're comfortable, then do the next portion and take your time. But you can get there. Everybody can get there. There's no such thing as you can't get there. You just have to do it in sections or phases or little steps. But do it that way. Don't think about the big task. Accomplish it little by little. And what are your family, members of your family back in Pakistan, what do you think they see in you now? 
I mean, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but they think I'm a rock star because they can't believe that I'm doing all this stuff in America. That I get to go to the White House and meet the president, that I get to fly in United States Air Force airplanes, that I work with members of Congress, that my communities recognize me as citizens of the year and the police department recognizes me. Last year, the Riverside Police Department gave me their citizen of the year award. A couple of years ago, Riverside Community College gave me their citizen of the year award. So they're, they're amazed. Um, but it's, it's all what I learned from watching my father and my grandfather because I have to give them credit because even though at the end I had this little disagreement with my father about the three women, but other than that, my dad encouraged me my whole life. And I was very thankful to him for picking me and saying, you know what, I think this is what he used to say. Someday I think the Russians are going to invade Afghanistan and Pakistan. And he was right. They did invade Afghanistan because that was a way to the Indian Ocean and the Arabian Sea that would give them more ports. And that's why he was afraid that they would come down because Russia is not that far. It's just above Afghanistan and Pakistan. So he said, let's think about America. So I was grateful that he had that thinking even back then. Thank you, Jamil. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. And America is, it's, I'm proud to be an American and may God bless America. I love this country. Thanks to Elaine McGibney and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American achiever.